Well, hey, welcome to First Church. Uh, My name's Chad, and I'm so excited to be here. I hope you're excited to be here as well. And right now, we have family meeting out at Stone Canyon, as well as others who will be joining us online. So if you would, let's take a moment. Let's welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, to get us started, I need your help. I'm going to put a couple options up before you, and we're going to vote, okay? So the way we're going to vote is by you cheering, hollering out loud for your favorite when I put these options before you. So it's okay to speak up in church. I'm giving you permission to do so. I need your help here, okay? And when you vote, I'm from Kentucky, so it's perfectly fine for you to hoop, holler, whistle, clap, cattle call, whatever you want to do. It's fine, okay? Anything goes in this moment. So I want to see where you guys are at on some key things. And the first thing that I want to ask is I want to see your favorite brand of coffee. So I've got Starbucks and I've got Maxwell House. So let me just hear you. Who, who in this room is a Starbucks fan? All right. How about Maxwell House? Not near to me. You guys need to wake up a little bit. I know it's first service, but still wake up just a little bit. Okay, I think more Starbucks than Maxwell House. You can tell we've got some millennials in the room. That's a good thing. Okay, here's our next option. McDonald's, probably all recognize that sack, and then Chick-fil-A. So let's see how many Christians we have in the room. Okay. (laughs) How many McDonald's fans do we have? You guys have little kids, don't you? I get it. Okay. How many Chick-fil-A fans do we have? Wow. I mean, can you be a Christian on vote for Chick-fil-A, really? Is there any other option? Okay, here's another one. Ooh, this is a tough one. Plain M&M's or peanut M&M's? Now, I used to eat M&M's all the time. I don't anymore. I'm tempted to open up one of these boxes right now. I'm not going to. But let me hear you. How many plain M&M fans do we have? Okay, more than what I thought. How many peanut M&M fans do we have? We've got some nutty people in the room today. Awesome, okay. Now, this one might divide our church. I'm not sure. Pepsi? Or Coca-Cola. So let me hear you. How many Pepsi fans do we have? Good number. How many Coca-Cola fans? A lot more. See, where I'm from, we call everything Coke. If you go to a restaurant and say, I want a Diet Coke, they don't say, is Diet Pepsi okay? It's just a given. Everything is Coke. But around here, I say, hey, I want a Diet Coke. Is Diet Pepsi all right? What's wrong with you people? It's all Coke. But okay. One more, and this is the toughest one. Are you ready? OU or OSU. Now, they both won yesterday, right? So we're in the heart of football season. Let's see where our church falls. How many OU fans do we have? Wow. Wow. Okay, how many OSU fans? Well, I hate to break it to you, but you know, you're both wrong. UK is always the way to go, all right? A couple of weeks ago, I had this lady walk up to me and she said, oh, my family is just so glad that you're here. My teenage daughter, she just loves your preaching, but there's one thing she can't stand. You talk about Kentucky way too much. She says it makes her sick. And I was like, you want me to pray for your daughter? Why are you telling me this? Do you have issues or something? No, I'll put this away because I know you guys don't want to look at that. But you know, I think this just proves my point. We're all different. We all have different preferences, different opinions. We're all different. We're not always going to agree on everything. We're not going to have everything in common. But you know, the Bible teaches that there is one thing that we all have in common. You may not have realized it, but there's one thing we all have in common, and it's this. We've all fallen. All of us. Every single one of us 
we're broken. The way the Bible words it is like this, Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now I want you to pay attention to what Paul says there. Everyone has sinned. Notice he doesn't say some people sin, a few people sin, a select group sins. Everyone has sinned. All fall short of God's glorious standard. In other words, we're all broken. We've all fallen. And here's something else we have in common. No matter how hard we try, we can't take the broken and shattered pieces of our lives and put ourselves back together again. We can't fix ourselves. You've probably heard the old nursing rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And if you've ever tried to put your life back together again on your own, you know it's an impossible task. Even with all the world's experts telling you how to do it, you can't put your life back together on your own. And those of you who've tried, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But you see, there is one who can put our lives back together. There is one who can make us whole. That verse, Romans 3.23, says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. But look at the very next verse, verse 24. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes His right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. I mean, we may not all agree on Pepsi or Coke, and we may not all agree on our favorite sports team, whether it's OU, OSU, or UK, go Cats. We may not all agree on things like that. But one thing we can all agree upon, agree on, is that we've all been desperate before. We've all been far from God at some point in our lives. We've all felt helpless. We've all felt hopeless. We all need a Savior. We need one to come in and rescue us. And that's exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came to rescue us from our brokenness. And those of us right now who've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, been baptized into Him, we are experiencing His restoration. We're experiencing what it's like to be brought back into God's family and to have our status restored before God. We know what it's like to be made whole again. But here's something that we can never forget. We are surrounded by people every single day who haven't experienced that restoration. We are surrounded by people every single day who are still very far from God. And that's why we started a series a few weeks ago entitled, Who's Your One? Because at one time, we were someone's one. At one time, we were far from God. At one time, we were completely broken, hopeless and helpless. And somebody made us their one. Somebody invested in us. Somebody came after us. Someone brought us to Jesus. And now that we're experiencing restoration and new life in Him, Jesus expects us to invest in others. That's why He teaches in Luke 14, 23, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that my house will be full. In other words, Jesus says, don't wait. Don't wait on those who are far from God to come to you. You go to them. Jesus says, they need you to bring them to me. Because Jesus knows everyone needs someone. Everyone needs someone to introduce them to him. Everyone needs someone to invest in them, to pray for them. 
Everyone needs someone who will bring them to the one who can change their lives and bring them out of the situation that they're currently in. And so let me ask today, who is it in your life that needs you to be their one? Their someone who goes after them and brings them to Jesus. Mark chapter 2, Jesus is visiting a small fishing village in northwest, on, the, on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a small village known as Capernaum. This was the hometown of Jesus' good friend Peter, one of his most faithful disciples. And this small town was not just known for fishing, it was also known for being a place where Jesus would go and retreat. He would stop by there often in order to recoup from his ministry work. And historians tell us that about 1,500 people or so lived in this small little village. And most of the houses in this village were pretty simple in design. They were square block homes uh, that had roofs with, hardened, with a hardened concoction of sticks and thatch, mud and clay over them. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is in one of these homes in the city of Capernaum, the town of Capernaum. And he's there, word spreads that he's there, and Jesus is a pretty popular guy at this point in his life. People have heard about his teachings, people know that he does miracles, and so people from all over come to Capernaum to hear him. Hundreds, if not thousands of people gather to hear him. And Jesus is staying in one of these simple homes in Capernaum. We're not sure whose home, it, might, it may have been Peter's home, and he starts to teach people within this house. And the crowds get so large, there's no room for anybody else to fit inside the house. In fact, verse 2 of Mark chapter 2 says, Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear Jesus. This is a once-in-a-lifetime to hear this great teacher of God's Word, to see this guy who does miracles. And so people from all over come, and they pack out this house, and the house is so full, you can't squeeze anybody else in. You can't even stand outside the door and look in and get a peek of Jesus. And in the midst of this scene, something interesting happens. If you pick up back in verse 2, it says, While he was preaching, while Jesus was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this paralyzed man. We don't know how he got in this condition. We don't know if he was born that way or if he experienced some horrific accident which caused him to be paralyzed. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about his personal background. We don't know his family heritage. We don't know his social background. We don't know his economic status or financial status. We don't even know where the guy's from. But what we do know about him is this. This man... He has four incredible friends. Four incredible friends that are willing to risk everything to get him to the one he needs to see, to get him to Jesus. And you know, the longer I live and the longer I'm in ministry, there's something that's hit me over time. What most people need who are far from God isn't a religious expert, but a godly friend. Let me say that again. What most people need isn't a religious expert. And what I mean by that is a religious know-it-all. What most people need is a godly friend. Now, I'm not in any way lessening the study of God's Word. We should always be growing in God's truth, and His truth will set us free. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But a lot of times what people need is not someone who's going to go in and just give them a bunch of religious jargon, platitudes, and cliches. 
What they need is someone who's going to show them who Jesus is, point them in the direction of Jesus, love them like Jesus. What they need is a Christ-like, godly friend. At the last church I served, there was this lady who passed away, and she was pretty young. It was unexpected. She had a heart attack, and so I went over to see her husband with another associate minister at the church. We went over and visited her husband soon after this happened, and we sat in his living room, and I remember there was a guy who showed up that day who, well, I knew him from around town, and I just kind of rolled my eyes when I saw him, and I should not have done that. I should have just, you know, loved like Jesus in that moment, but I just knew what was going to happen. This guy is what I would call a religious know-it-all, and immediately he came in and started dominating the conversation, just kept talking and talking and talking, and it wasn't really the right time for all that, and he just kept spouting out all these religious platitudes and cliches and sayings about why this happened, trying to explain to this man why his wife had just died, and I remember sitting there in this man's living room, listening to this conversation, conversation just thinking hush that's not what this guy needs right now he just needs somebody to love him he just needs somebody who's going to be there for him and support him that's what he needs he's not going to remember anything you're saying right now stop trying to prove to everybody how smart you are how religious you are see Jesus made followers because he made friends and before Jesus ever preached to people or taught people, he would befriend them first. He would show them love first. And that was then the open door for him to teach them about God's truth. And I believe he expects the same from us. Sometimes the reason why we don't go out and reach out to people like we should or minister to people like we should or talk to people about Jesus like we should is because we think we have to have all the answers. And we think, what if they ask us a question that we don't know the answer to? Guys, don't worry about that. Our job is not to save people. Jesus does that. Our job is to introduce, to the woman, introduce them to the one who can save them. That's what we're here to do. So don't worry about having all the answers. Just be there to point them to Jesus because Jesus is the one who is the answer. And that's what these four men in Mark chapter 2 get. See, they understand that they can't change their friend's situation. They don't have the power to do that but they know the one who can. So they bring their friend on his mat to Jesus. But by the time these four men bring their friend to the house where Jesus was teaching, they encounter a problem. Verse 4 in Mark chapter 2 says, They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So the house is so packed that no one else can get inside. So you know what these four dudes decide to do? <laughs> They go up on the roof. They climb up on the roof. They bring their friend on his mat up on the roof. I bet you that was a challenge. And they go up on the roof, and I don't know if they had shovels with them or digging tools or a saw or what, but they cut a hole. They dig a hole in someone's roof, and then they lower their friend on his mat down right in front of where Jesus was. Now, those of us who've grown up in church, we've probably heard this story so many times that it loses its shock value. I don't want that to happen today. This is a crazy thing that these guys did. This was not a normal thing. It wasn't an everyday occurrence in the first century world to climb up on somebody's house and cut a hole in the roof. That wasn't a normal thing. This was a crazy thing that these guys did to get their friend to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine going out to eat? I remember the first time that my parents came to Owasso to visit us. We wanted to take them to this one one restaurant in town it's a real popular place and so we went there on a Saturday night bad idea 
And we go up to the front, and they tell us it's going to be an hour and a half wait before we can be seated. Can you imagine if I turned to my parents and I said, don't worry about it, I'll just climb on, climb on the roof, and I'll cut a hole, and we'll go on down and find us a table. First of all, I would have spent the night in jail, we know that, but also my parents would have said, what is Oklahoma doing to you? You know, there's no way we would do something like that. That's crazy what these guys did. It was crazy. Can you imagine being one of the people in the house that day listening to Jesus teach? I mean, you're listening to Jesus teach, and you're taking it all in. No one's ever taught like that before. At least you haven't experienced it. And you are listening to Jesus teach, and all of a sudden you hear some commotion on the roof. You think, what is that? An animal? A bird? What is that exactly? And then you see some dust and debris start to fall from the ceiling. And then all of a sudden a little bit of light shines in. And then a lot of light. And as soon as your eyes adjust, you notice there's this man being lowered on a mat right in front of Jesus. I bet you Jesus stopped teaching. I'm sure no one else was paying attention to what Jesus was saying at that moment. Can you imagine being in the house that day? Can you imagine being that guy who was lowered? in on the mat I mean can you imagine being lowered in from the roof and so you're just like do 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 hey guys this, I mean this is their idea not not me I promise it's their idea and everybody's staring at you can you imagine being that guy did you like me being lowered in from the roof yeah uh, can you imagine having all eyes on you like what in the world is going on here this was a crazy crazy thing but these friends they had a resolve that said, we're going to get our friend to Jesus even if we have to wreck the roof to do it. We'll take the risk. We'll pay the cost to get the roof repaired. We'll let people give us funny looks and stares. We don't care. We're willing to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. They weren't going to allow any unnecessary barriers to keep their friend from meeting the one he needed to meet. You see, our job isn't to change people. Jesus changes people. Our job is to remove any unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. Aaron Brockett preaches at Traders Point Christian Church just outside of Indianapolis, and I heard him tell the story one time about a baptism Sunday they were having, and this woman came forward, and she said she wanted to be baptized, and they were all excited, but she said, I have a problem. She said, I'm wearing an ankle monitor probation monitor and she said it can't get wet so they went to Aaron and they said what, what are we going to do and Aaron said baptize her they said we don't have a plan to do this and he said I don't care we'll find a way so then he turned to some of his fellow staff members and he said listen we've got this lady she's got an ankle monitor on she wants to be baptized and his staff looked at him and said Aaron what are we going to do and he said I don't know come up with it and so he goes to get dressed to go do the baptism and what they ended up doing was six different men held this woman up and they lowered her into the baptistry with one man holding her ankle so that it didn't get wet they immersed her beside her ankle and then they brought her back up baptized her into Christ and I remember as Aaron was telling the story he said I knew we would find a way because that's the type of church I'm at we're not let anything keep somebody from coming to Jesus now I know that's an extreme example probably we won't be faced with that hey if we are faced with that we'll find a way to baptize you I promise but that should be our mentality we're willing to do whatever it takes short of sin to get someone to Jesus. And I'm convinced these four men, they had that mentality. And you know why they had that mentality? Because they put themselves on the mat with their buddy. 
They put themselves in his spot. They asked themselves the questions, what if it were me? What if I had to beg for food every day? What if I didn't have use of my legs? What if I was in his situation? What would I want someone to do for me? And I think sometimes the reason why we don't have the compassion for others like we should is because we don't put ourselves on the mat with them. I remember taking my family to Cincinnati one time to go visit the Cincinnati Zoo, and we're driving on this really busy, heavy traffic road, and we get a flat tire. So I pull off into the emergency lane, and some of you know about me, I I know nothing about cars. I can't change a tire to save my life. I know I'm losing my man card right now. I don't care. By the grace of God, I am who I am, okay? So I can't change a tire, but my dad does pay for me to have a AAA membership every Christmas. So I called AAA. They came, and they put the donut on the car. It went on the front passenger your side and the guy from AAA told me he said you're fine to drive for several miles uh, to get your tire fixed but he said don't go over 50 miles per hour because you may put your family at risk you may lose control or it could blow out or whatever I was like okay I can do that so I take off and I'm on this real busy road where the speed limit is 70 miles per hour and people are passing me like I'm sitting still and they can't tell I have this donut because it's, it's on the passenger side front side they can't tell and people are mad at me I mean people are giving me mean looks they're honking at me one guy told me I was number one if you know what I'm saying and so it was not a very comfortable situation and I remember thinking as I'm driving if only you guys knew I would like to drive a lot faster I really would but I can't because I'm trying to keep my family safe if only you guys knew if only you guys were sitting in my seat then maybe you would understand guys it's not until we put ourselves in the shoes of a single mom or a child dealing with an aging parent or someone whose spouse who's just been diagnosed with cancer, or a parent dealing with a rebellious child, or someone who's just been laid off from their job, or you name it, that you'll be moved to emotion. Emotion that causes you to do something for that person. Because then you ask the question, what if I was in that spot? What would I want someone else to do for me? So let me ask, what would our lives look like if our compassion was greater than our comfort? What would our community look like if our compassion as a church was greater than our comforts? What would our church look like? What would your family look like? What would your friendships look like? What would your workplace look like if your compassion was greater than your comfort? See, the problem in many churches is that we're all about loving people until loving people cost too much, until loving people ask too much of us. But that wasn't the case for these four friends. Their friend was worth the risk. He was worth the cost. And this pleases Jesus. Look what happens, verse 5 of Mark chapter 2. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now you would think after an interruption like this that Jesus would be done preaching, that the sermon would be over. I've been interrupted several times in the midst of a lesson or in the midst of a sermon, and most of the time it's hard to recover after you've had a major interruption. I remember when I was in college, I had this part-time ministry, and during the summers I would, leave, uh, I would lead a Wednesday night Bible study. And so I was teaching one Wednesday night, and we had been in the lesson probably about 15 minutes or so, and all of a sudden all the people are sitting at tables, you know, long tables, and I'm up at a podium, 
And all of a sudden, the front table comes flying at me. I mean, it's coming at me. And so I kind of jump out of the way because this lady who's sitting in front of me, she's turning this table over. I didn't know what was going on. And so I jump out of the way. And what happened was this six-foot black snake had got into our fellowship hall. And the snake was underneath the table. And when this lady saw it, she just flipped out. And so she grabbed the table and threw it. I don't know what that was going to do, but still, she grabbed the table and threw it. And everybody panicked. I mean, the Red Sea parted in that moment as the, as the snake was sitting there on the ground. This old farmer, he just kind of walked up, grabbed the snake, and threw it outside like it was no big deal. I called this a snake handling church after that night. But uh, it was kind of a crazy, crazy evening. And you know, right after that happened, you think I got back up and started teaching again? No, I was in the corner of the room in a fetal position. I can't stand snakes, you know. I was done. And so when I did get back up to the podium, I was like, guys, we're done for the night. We'll pick back up next week. There's no way. Jesus, he's not done though. You would think after an interruption like this, he would be finished. Nope. The sermon's really just beginning at this point. Because Jesus didn't see interruptions as inconveniences, but as opportunities. And I want you to notice three things from this verse that we just read. Remember what the verse said? Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. First, Jesus was moved by their faith in the plural form. He wasn't moved by the faith of the man on the mat. He was moved by the faith of the friends who brought the man on the mat to him. He was moved by their faith. Anytime Jesus sees people whose compassion is greater than their comfort, it moves him to action. Jesus works in powerful ways when he sees people who are willing to love others as he has loved them. And so often churches are not reaching their full potential when it comes to ministry because their people, though they're showing up week after week, their compassion is not greater than their comfort. And sometimes the recipe for growth is not a bigger building or a debt-free church or more programs and activities or more staff. Sometimes the answer to get a church growing in is for the hearts of the people to change to where their compassion is greater than their comfort. That will move Jesus to action quicker than anything else. Second, I want you to notice how Jesus calls the paralyzed man, my child. This was a Greek word that was a term of endearment that a loving parent would use for a child. Now what you need to get is in this day and age, there was the common idea among the people. It was a wrong idea, it was a false idea, it was inaccurate, it was unfair, but it's what people believe. People in this day believe that if you had some type of disability, you were being cursed by God. Now again, the Bible doesn't teach that. We don't believe that. This church doesn't teach that. That is a wrong, wrong idea. Yet that's what people believed in this day. And so by Jesus turning to this man and saying, my child, what's he doing? Here is God in flesh calling this man his child. He's saying, I don't care what labels everybody else has placed upon you. I don't care what everybody else thinks of you. I don't care if everybody else believes you've been cursed by God. You haven't been. You are my child and you matter to me. Jesus was adding value to this man's life. And I don't know your story today. I don't know where you come from. I don't know your background. I don't know what situation you're in right now. I don't know what labels people have placed upon you. I don't know what looks people have given you. I don't know your story. But I do know one thing. No matter what situation you find yourself in right now, you are a child of God. And you matter to Him. 
And because you matter to him, you matter to us. And at this church, at First Church, we're not going to judge you. We're not going to compare you to anyone else. We're not going to exclude you. No, we're going to wreck the roof for you. Because when we look at you, we see ourselves. Someone who's broken. Someone who's in desperate need of God's grace. Because we're all in this thing together. And I just want to apologize if you've ever been part of a church that has made you feel like you, you are less than them or you don't fit in or belong. That's not this place. We're all in need of God's grace. And then the third thing that Jesus says is your sins are forgiven. Did you catch that? Now this guy came to Jesus to receive physical healing and Jesus says your sins are forgiven. I'm sure this guy's friends are probably thinking that's great and everything but we came here so, the, so our friend could walk again. Yeah, that's great. And Jesus will end up restoring this man's legs to where he can walk again. He will give him physical healing but why does he say your sins are forgiven first? Because Jesus' primary concern was the condition of this man's soul. Healing his legs, that was a temporary fix. Yeah, he could walk again, but eventually he's going to be out of this body, right? And who knows, he may even re-injure those legs again. That was a temporary fix. Jesus will heal him physically because Jesus hates to see anybody in pain and suffering, but he was most concerned about this man's soul. He was concerned about his eternal well-being. And that's why we serve people physically. That's why we go out and do tangible things to show people the love of Jesus because we care about their souls. And when you reach out to people because you care about their souls, you will serve them in whatever way you possibly can. See, as a church, when we see people who are far from God, we don't see the color of their skin. We don't see their financial portfolio. We don't see their physical appearance. We don't see their past mistakes. We don't see their resume. We don't see their marital status. We don't see their education level. We don't see their mortgage payment. We don't see the car they drive. We don't see the labels that others have placed on them. What we see is their soul. And we know on their soul is stamped the image of Almighty God, that they are a child or a daughter of God. And because of that, we love them. And we do whatever we possibly can to serve them. That's why we go out and serve people in very physical ways. Because we want to let them know they are loved by God. And you probably heard earlier in our announcement time, this is love week here at First Church. And we want you to go out and serve people every single week. But especially this week, we're challenging our church. So I just want to challenge you guys, go out in a very physical way, so show somebody the love of Jesus. Sometimes we think that in order to witness to somebody that we've got to go preach a sermon to them. Not always. Sometimes what people need is just an act of kindness, an act of love, and that will open a door for us to, them introdu to introduce them to who Jesus is. So go out and make a pie for your next door neighbor. Send a card to someone who needs encouragement. I can't tell you how much I love to receive cards. I really do. Take some co-workers out to lunch one day. Bring donuts to the office. Mow your neighbor's yard, especially if you live on my street. Mow your neighbor's yard. <laughs> Invite someone over for a cookout. Watch a ball game with them. You can come over and watch a ball game with me, just not, not UK, because I don't act like Jesus when UK plays. I'm kidding. That's a joke, but still. Offer to pick up groceries for a widow or shut in in your neighborhood or someone in our church. Go out and show people the love of Jesus. And by building a relationship with that person, God may give you just the open door you need 
to tell them about the Savior that they need. Remember, Jesus made followers because he made friends. And if you want a more organized way to go and do that this week. We've got a lot of work projects going on. You probably heard how we're going to build a wheelchair ramp for someone in our community. We're going to do maintenance on some homes for some elderly people. We're going to build an awning, do some landscaping for an adult day center. We're going to bring those box meals to people. Pick up those box meals before you leave. There are four, I believe, ready-made meals in one of those boxes. And so when you drive downtown Tulsa or Owasso and you see people that are begging for food or need help or assistance, give them one of those boxes. But don't just give it to them write a message on it you know tell them that Jesus loves them tell them our church loves them put a scripture verse on there give them one of those boxes and there are so many other ways that you can serve let's go out and meet people's physical needs because we care about their souls and we want to love them as God has loved us See, I want us to be known as a church that wrecks the roof to show people the love of Jesus. And that's what these four men did in Mark chapter 2. But here's the thing, not everyone was impressed with what took place on that day. So pick up with me, let's finish this story, verse 6 of Mark chapter 2. And the scripture says this, But some of the teachers of of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. See, guys, anytime you attempt to do something crazy for Jesus, you're going to experience resistance. It's going to happen. Anytime you attempt something crazy for Jesus, you're going to be criticized. There are always going to be those who don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. And in this case, in Mark chapter 2, it happens to be the religious leaders Let me just be transparent with you. You know, I expect criticism from the outside world when I try to carry out Jesus' work in my own life and in the life of our church. But what knocks the spiritual wind out of me is when I receive criticism from inside the church for trying to love like Jesus. And it happens. At a previous church I served, there was a girl who started coming to our church simply because she was pregnant and she wasn't married. The guy who she had been with, decided to leave her, denying that the baby was his, and she was all on her own. Her family for a while disowned her, and so she turned to the church in a time of desperation. So she started coming every single Sunday, and she was really paying attention. There were several Sundays where I just saw tears running down her cheeks as I would preach a message. In our church, we rallied around her, we supported her, we loved her, and she felt welcome. And one day she said she wanted to talk to me, so one of the elders of the church met with, uh, met with me and her, and we talked, and she said, I want to get baptized. I said, that's awesome, that's great. And she said, can I do it next Sunday, because I want to invite my family and see if they'll come. I said, yeah, that's fine, that's no problem. So we got everything ready, and word spread that this girl was going to get baptized. I'm going to call her Amanda, that's not her real name, I want to protect her privacy, but I'm going to call her Amanda for the sake of me retelling, telling what happened. And so word spread that Amanda was going to get baptized. And this older gentleman in our church met with me that week. And he said, I hear Amanda wants to get baptized on Sunday before the entire church. 
I said, yeah, that's true. He said, is that really such a good idea? I was like, what do you mean is that a good idea? What are you talking about? He said, well, you know her situation. And you know she's pregnant and she's showing. And everybody's going to see that. Maybe we should do it in private. Maybe we shouldn't do it in front of everyone. I kind of knew why he was going to stop by that day. So I was ready for him. In a very loving way, I looked at him and I said, okay, let's hit pause for a second. Let's pretend for a moment that Amanda was your daughter. You have a daughter, right? And he said, yeah, I do. So let's pretend that Amanda was your daughter. And you raised her, loved her with all your heart. And one day she went wild and rebelled. And she ran off and you had no idea where she went. And you looked for her for years. You paid people to try to find her with no luck. You even put out a reward for her. If anybody could bring you any information about where she might be. And still you had no idea where she might be. You didn't know if she was dead or alive. And then one day out of nowhere, your phone rings. And it's Amanda, your daughter. And she says, Daddy, I've messed up. I'm sorry. But I'm ready to come home. But here's the thing. I got some baggage, Daddy. I've done some stuff I should not have done. And I'm going to have to pay some consequences for it. I said, if your daughter called you up and said that to you, what would you do? He said, I would get in the car immediately and go find her and bring her home. And I got ready to make my point and I couldn't even make it before he interrupted me and he said, we need to do anything we can to get this daughter of our Heavenly Father home to him. We baptized her that next Sunday and the entire church erupted in applause when we did. See, our job is to remove any unnecessary barriers from people who are far, far from Christ. And the only times in the Gospels when Jesus got upset is when people were putting up barriers that he had already knocked down. It's sad, but sometimes people become so religious that they forget their own need for grace, and so they lose their compassion for others. But we must never forget that at some point in our lives, we were the ones who were lost. We were someone's one. And someone took a risk on us. Someone showed us love that we didn't deserve. Someone wrecked the roof so that we could be brought to Jesus. And so today, we should be willing to do the same. Guys, the stakes are too high for us to let personal comforts or resistance from others stop us from extending the love of Jesus to those who need it. Jesus never let resistance stop him from loving people. And neither should we. We shouldn't let anything keep us from going to those who need us, who need us to bring them to Jesus. I love how this passage ends. We've already read the verse, but looking in at verse 12, this is the response of the crowd who was gathered there that day. And look at what they say. We've never seen anything like this before. What if that was said of us? What if because of our love, because of our ministry, because of our work, because we were willing to wreck the roof for our community, for those in our lives. What if the 918, what if Northeast Oklahoma said about First Church? We've never seen anything like this before. Jesus knows everyone needs someone. Be that one that wrecks the roof so that someone else 
can come and know the one who can rewrite their story. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today. And we thank you for the time we've had to gather here and to open up your word and study. And Father, we just pray that as we reflect upon what we've heard from your word, that we will follow the example of these four friends, that we will see the needs of others and we will wreck the roof. We will do whatever we possibly can to get those far from you to you. Father, may we not be a church that sits on our hands, but may we be a church whose compassion is greater than our comfort. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.